I was fed up to here and I'm extending my arm yards above my head. The people were getting into my diary and into my suitcase. And so I printed a, a note to them in capital letters saying, if you want to know any of this stuff, come and talk to me, I'll tell you. That's Teddy Rowe. He's talking about the note he left for the KGB. It was April 1968, and he was a few weeks into his three-month trip to the Soviet Union. I interviewed Teddy over a weekend in January 2020. Seems like a lifetime ago. We're in the den of his house in Billings, Montana. Books, DVDs, photos, and knickknacks line the walls. Teddy's raspy voice often stumbles. It's the cancer medication, he says. It fogs up his mind and leaves him grasping for words. I got a real kick out of Teddy's note to the KGB. It was a classic, I know that you know and I know that you know I know. But Teddy wasn't wrong. The KGB did break into his stuff. And we have the documents to prove it. Rewind a few months. It's October 2019, and I open my email, and there's this message from a guy named Edward Andrushenko. My greetings to you and to all the podcast listeners. I studied history and later passed a PhD defense on Ukrainian nationalists of the 1990s. Uh, currently, I live in Kyiv and work as a freelance journalist, uh, mainly writing uh, articles based on the KGB archives. The Ukrainian government threw open the doors to its KGB archive in 2015, and Edward was combing it for documents on Ukrainian nationalists. He didn't find much. Almost nothing. Most of the files I needed were likely destroyed by the KGB before the collapse of the USSR. Still, Edward did find many other interesting KGB documents. The KGB reported on everything important and sometimes not very much important, like arrests of dissidents, mass fights anti-Soviet inscriptions in public transport, food poisoning, youth sub subcultures, and even about uh, ideologically harmful music played in some restaurants. Edward now shares his finds on his Telegram and YouTube channel, KGB Files. Edward told me about a KGB report he found on an American tourist named Teddy Rowe. The KGB sometimes sent reports about foreign tourists who did something forbidden in the USSR or simply behaved suspiciously. Uh, this is not uncommon in the KGB archives. Edward and I didn't know each other, but he's an SRV podcast listener, and he wondered if I was interested in working together and track down Mr. Rowe. He wanted to write an article. Maybe I'd do a podcast. And then I wrote to you. You agreed to collaborate and could, uh, and could find uh, Mr. O. Edward's message arrived at the perfect time. I've been wanting to branch out to the narrative audio. A story about Rose seemed like a good chance to try my hand at the genre.
Here are the results. Over the next six episodes, you'll hear how Americans and Soviets made sense of each other, and through that, themselves during the Cold War, that global struggle between the United States and the USSR from 1945 to 1991. Now, I grew up in the 1980s, when Cold War tensions flared, and I remember how the Soviet Union and its people were portrayed as dangerous, suspicious, and scary. Nuclear Armageddon could happen at any moment, because the Soviets hated our way of life. They were, as Ronald Reagan put it, Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man, and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. So the Soviets were scary, evil, and that makes Teddy's trip there so fascinating and predictable. Fascinating because he went there as a tourist to see the evil empire. Predictable because Teddy's assumptions, suspicions, and expectations were common American views of the ultimate enemy. This first episode introduces Teddy and looks at his experience as an American tourist. Mass tourism to the Soviet Union began as a trickle in the late 1950s and peaked in the 1970s. Americans were some of the largest groups of foreign travelers to the USSR. What did tourists like Teddy encounter behind the Iron Curtain? Later episodes will examine the KGB efforts to monitor tourists, delve into Soviet consumer culture, uncover the Soviet obsession with American racism, and present a snapshot of the daily lives of Soviet people. Teddy's travels, observations, encounters, and recollections will serve as a window. But ultimately, this series is about assumptions. The assumptions that seep into our mind about foreign places, how we imagine them and their people, and how we anticipate their look and feel. This was especially the case with the Soviet Union. It's been 30 years since the USSR faded from existence, yet it still weighs on us, still haunts our present, and shapes how we imagine the future. Making this series has been a personal journey as well, I was a Cold War kid, and I recognized myself in Teddy, and my struggle is how to take the Soviet experience on its own terms, without the conceit of Cold War ideology. I'm Sean Guillory, your guide on this journey, and this is Teddy Goes to the USSR. Episode 1, Teddy Greets the Soviet Union. Act 1. Dramatis Personae. So I decided to make a series about Teddy Rowe's tour of the Soviet Union. My first question was, is he still alive? And my second, how do I find him? Naturally, I turned to Google. Initial searches turned up little. Most hits were to the Chicago mob boss Theodore Teddy L. Rowe, the Robin Hood of the Hood. Rowe controlled illegal gambling in Chicago's South Side in the 1940s and 1950s. He was clearly not the Teddy I was looking for. Then another Teddy popped up in an article about wilderness preservation in and around Billings, Montana. Was this the Teddy I was looking for? And how to contact him if it was? Then I got lucky. I found a partial email on one of those people finder websites. I guessed at the missing letters and shot off an email. Is this the Teddy row I'm looking for, I wrote? Would you be interested? Teddy responded a few days later. This is indeed the Teddy you have been seeking, he wrote. 
I made plans to travel to Billings. We are in Mormon country right now where you are throughout the West there. I think the microphone is actually a good distance. If you could maybe move it a little bit closer to you. Yeah, I one, think that's two, good. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. I think that sounds good. I'll turn on some banjo music in the background. <laughs> that carries well. <laughs> Do you play banjo? No. But I wish I did. Do you play any musical instruments? I, I played. This is my first time in the northern mountain states. And yes, the sky is really big. On the radio, etc. And I liked it. And I worked at a saddle shop. And uh, there were... Teddy visited every Soviet republic in the spring of 1968. Like he also has a 400-page diary, a day-by-day -day blow of his trip, and over 200 photographs. But there's a few things you need to know about Teddy. He's 87 years old. He lives in the magic city Billings, Montana, with Marcy, his wife of 55 years. Teddy was a staffer in Congress by trade, mainly for Montana Senators Mike Mansfield and Lee Metcalf. One of his favorite sayings is, flounder forward. Marcy is a professional gemologist. That means she spends a lot of time peering at precious gems. They share a passion for politics and the gospier side of Democratic Party maneuvers. They are both avid FIFA fans. Teddy even worked on the organizing committee for the World Cup's U.S. debut in 1994. My name is Teddy Rowe. It's not a nickname. My name is Teddy. And actually, I like it because it's unique. First name Teddy, last name Roe, three letters, R-O-E. You never put an English W in an Irishman's last name. Teddy was born in 1934 in southwest Nebraska, the oldest boy in what he calls a sandwich, one girl, five boys, and one girl. He grew up on a dirt farm. Uh, and my father was an alcoholic, a very bad one. We had seven kids in 10 years, no electricity. It was, a, it was a tough existence. Like for so many at the time, farming was a dead end. Teddy's family was forced to sell the Nebraska farm and hit the road. Just like the Grapes of Wrath. Between the years 1935 and 1939, 350,000 people left their homes and farms in the Dust Bowl. With no money- Imagine it. A beat-up 1934 Chevy stuffed with seven kids and two adults, pulling a two-wheel trailer with a wash tub on top. An uncle suggested they try their fortunes in Idaho. The rose lasted a year. And back on the road again. But while in Idaho for less than a year, I got my first eight-hour-a-day job when I was 10 years old. As a kid, Teddy liked school and did well for being a dirt farm boy. He studied journalism at Montana State University where he penned articles about campus life for the school paper. A stint in the Army followed two years in college. The GI Bill allowed him to return to his studies, this time to journalism school at the University of Montana. Teddy did brief stints at local papers, the Great Falls Leader, and the Des Moines Register after graduation. Now, besides journalism, Latin America also sparked Teddy's fancy. A grant in 1960 paid for a year at the University of Buenos Aires. But an American political science fellowship a year later sent him on a completely different path. 
This was Teddy's first foray into Congress, first as an intern, then a staffer, and he never looked back. I negotiated my first half year in the Congress with, an, with a segregationist from Alabama. He was chairman of the subcommittee on Latin American affairs. I didn't see much of that, but I sure saw a lot of segregation. Anyway, I worked for this gentleman from South Alabama. He ran for the Senate and lost, and that he was gone. The segregationist congressman was Amistad Selden. We'll return to him in episode four. Selden's loss freed Teddy to join Montana Democratic giant Senator Mike Mansfield. And that's really when I left journalism. I sort of always lamented it, but life was still good to me. And so while I was working uh, for the majority leader and got a master's degree in Russian area studies, I had been interested in things Russian all my life and things Spanish. Fast forward to 1967. Teddy and Marcy married that November, and Teddy had been working for Mansfield now for five years. And with a master's degree in Russian studies from Georgetown under his arm, he decided to try his hand for a scholarship to go to Brazil and the Soviet Union. I knew generally that I wanted to go to the Soviet Union. I knew Central Asia would have to be in it. Teddy's first trip to South America planted the seed to go to the USSR. When I was in Argentina, I, I got a best friend, a very lovely gentleman who was very cultured, very nice. His name was Andres Rimsky-Korsakov. He descended from the brother of the famous composer. And every weekend, he and I would go out to his families where the old emigres from the Bolshevik Revolution that had gone to Argentina, where they would gather. And they'd be chattering away in Russian, and I would think, Boy, wouldn't that be nice. Act two, Mr. Twister. Mr. Twister, бывший министр. Mr. Twister, делец и банкир, владелец заводов, газет, пароходов, решил на досуге объехать мир. That's Mr. Twister, Samuel Marshak's iconic 1933 Soviet children's satire. It's about an American capitalist who travels to the Soviet Union with his pampered wife and daughter. Twister is horrified when he discovers the hotel allows black guests. The capitalist scoops up his family and searches in vain to find a Leningrad hotel that shares his racism. Marshak's poem is a classic spoof of the American traveler to the USSR, entitled, Coddled, and Racist. Most American visitors to the Soviet Union were not fat cats of capital like Mr. Twister. They were mostly regular people. The Soviet Union was never an American tourist hotspot, and the USSR only expanded its tourism in the 1950s. At first, American tourists trickled in by a few thousand. But by the early 1970s, it was... About 70,000. And then it was over 100,000, I believe, by 1980. So the flow was ever increasing. There was, sometimes it stabilized or flattened because of geopolitical events. And it's also interesting that Americans were the largest group of uh, Western tourists outside of East Germans and Finns who were much closer to the Soviet Union. That's Andrew Jacobs. He wrote his dissertation on American tourism to the Soviet Union, You'll be hearing from him throughout the series. 
Now, the Soviet agency Intourist, which simply means foreign tourist, managed every aspect of Soviet tourism. Created in 1929, Intourists aspired to what Jacobs calls controlled openness. To allow visitors to see that the USSR was not a closed society, but shaped the narratives tourists left with. It was a Herculean, complicated, and in many respects, fruitless exercise. Especially if you consider Intourist boasted hosting over 70 million foreign visitors in its 60-year existence. But Intourist was not a government agency, and propaganda was not its main purpose. It was a state corporation. And it has a very simple mission statement. It's a commercial institution uh, whose job is to make the Soviet Union money by handling foreign tourism to the, to the country and having total monopoly over it. I don't think there is a really a, a parallel to it anywhere, but at some point, the Financial Times found it was the single largest tourist company in the world. That's Alex Hazanov. He wrote a study of foreign tourism to the Soviet Union in the post-war period. Alex says that by the mid-1980s, Intourist employed over 50,000 people. It operated over 100 hotels and restaurants, commanded a fleet of cars and buses, and owned office buildings and other property inside and outside the USSR. Intourist provided foreign visitors everything – visas, itineraries, travel and accommodations, guides, leisure, and entertainment. It also made sure you followed the rules and report any suspicious behavior to the KGB. We'll address this last bit about the KGB in the next episode. So Teddy was one of hundreds of thousands of Americans to enter the enemy's lair, a country that wanted to destroy them, where the people supposedly lived totally different from them, a place that was mysterious and dangerous. And of course, during the Cold War, tourism wasn't just tourism. Ideology placed Soviet life under a powerful microscope. One of the goals for opening up the USSR was to de-exoticize Soviet life and present it just like it was anywhere else. That tourism was very normal and no very normal thing to do when the Soviet Union would accept them. That they would have hotels and restaurants and shopping available to them like in any other Western European country. So it was definitely to show that we are not slam populated by ardent communists or political propagandists, these were normal people too, who had created a different system that was more beneficial to the population. Most tourists visited the USSR's main sites and cities. Moscow and Leningrad were typical mainstays. Also the Golden Ring of the medieval cities of Rostov, Yaroslavl, Kostroma, Ivanova, Suzdol, and Vladimir. Tourists were also shuttled to model schools and factories to dazzle them with the achievements of the Soviet system, the things observers often ridiculed as propaganda. But apparently, the directors and other staff that had to host visitors hated these drop-ins too. They were unwelcome distractions, and of course, since the Soviet government was highly secretive, tourists often didn't even get to see the newest and most innovative factories. Intourists provided two options for tourists, group junkets and individual tours. Most itineraries were a package deal. You booked your trip through Intourists' foreign partners. In the 1970s, Soviet package itineraries became more touristy, less showcasing and more cultural and historical sightseeing. Visitors now were going to museums, historical sites, 
art museums. But there was a lot of flexibility in terms of itinerary, if Teddy's trip is any guide. Really, it was totally my desires. I personally picked American Express because they had a good reputation and still do. So the time was spent in deciding where to go and how much time to spend there. But no, it was really a, a solo operation. Teddy's trip was extraordinary. Three months long, April to July 1968, not the average week to 10 days for most tourists. It took him to the major cities in every Soviet republic, from Moscow to Leningrad, through the Baltics, down to Belarus and Ukraine, southeast to Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, then across the Caspian Sea to Turkmenistan, a hop and a skip to Tajikistan, a U-turn back through Uzbekistan, northeast to Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, and then east to Lake Baikal, where he boarded the Trans-Siberian Railway to Nakhodka in the Far East. And Teddy recorded his observations, ruminations, and encounters in his 400-plus page diary. Teddy left from Argentina with a layover in Liberia on Africa's west coast. Darned if when the airplane landed there, it got a rock in the engine. So, I mean, it threw everything off. Then on through Hungary and Poland to the Soviet Union. Teddy arrived in Moscow on April 5th, 1968. And he says that he was immediately hit with what he called typical Soviet experiences. And while his initial impressions were rooted in the exotic, it's not surprising that so-called typical Soviet experiences produce some culture shock for Americans like Teddy. And things were gray. And I went right to the National Hotel, which was on the edge of Red Square. Teddy couldn't have landed in a more central location. Built in 1903, the late Tsarist Hotel National hosted such American luminaries as Paul Robeson, John Steinbeck, and Armin Hammer. Even Bill Clinton stayed there during his vacation in 1969, as did Donald Trump in 1987. But I remember going into the elevator to go up to my room. They had a fellow there, he must have been six feet tall, and he was dressed in a military-type uniform that was sort of a red-orange with gold braid, etc. And he stood there at almost at attention, and several people had accumulated, and more came. They came, they came. When he had a full elevator, he went, he took them up. And I thought, well, welcome, Roe, you have arrived. In Tourist and its representatives were Teddy's main points of contact, and his experience with them was frustrating, to say the least. What you had was a fractured organization of service who really didn't know how to give service for the most part. When they had you in front of them, they were nice. They were, for the most part, competent interpreters, but uh, there wasn't a body of protocol that we would take for granted here. It would have had to have been taught, and who would have taught it if they didn't have the experience themselves? Teddy's complaints were typical. Alex Hazanov and Andrew Jacobs note the conditions of Soviet life were the main things tourists had to put up with. The hotels are not working well. Cockroaches in hotel rooms. Our stuff is rude. About the bad food, about surly waiters and waitresses. Our buses break down. Being rushed by Soviet young people asking to buy their jeans, um, exchange money, records, things like that. So it's just kind of a, a long and litany of, of minor inconveniences. Even tour guides couldn't ignore the poor conditions of Soviet tourism. 
And it was a very difficult job for these guys. Always had to try and pre present the Soviet Union in the best possible light, which was difficult when the accommodations weren't great. And sometimes you can read in these reports the kind of the embarrassment of the guides as they report back to their tourist bosses about broken doors or no elevators or the lack of hot water. And sometimes they actually even say, you cannot bring Western tourists to this or that site because it's not up to their standards. Tourists complained that in-tourist guides kept them on a short leash. You are kind of chapped by in-tourist who has the mandate to make sure that the, you just follow the rules. Um, and if you want to go out to a stroll, if you, if you want to change your plans, if you want to meet up with somebody, their job is to discourage you, sometimes very strongly. And just who were these in-tourist guides? They were both warriors on the ideological front and the so-called golden links in the chain of friendship, and translators of the image Soviet authorities wanted to transmit to the world. But really, most were 20-something female graduates of foreign language institutes. And uh, the most likely path for them, they start with interest as a summer job, and then they stick around as a long-term career. Initially, these young people were drawn to Intourist out of a desire to show their country and how they really lived. Later on, there are lots of cynical accommodation that, that you really do have access to foreigners. Also, um, you oftentimes get to go with Soviet tourists going abroad, which is an enormous, enormous, of course, benefit of being an interest guide. Guides went through intense training. In theory, they had to memorize a bunch of facts about the greatness of the Soviet Union. And this data wasn't just to dazzle tourists, but verbal arrows to fend off ideological pushback. And they have this kind of Q&A setups in which if somebody argues with you, there are ways in which you shut them up. You know, you basically say, oh, you say this, but uh, see how, you how badly the United States deals with race and so on. Tourists tended to confront guides on foreign policy and the Soviet standard of living. Challenges were met with a string of whataboutisms. If a tourist raised questions about the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, guides would punch back with the war in Vietnam. And if that didn't work, guides put outspoken tourists in their place through humiliation. And if, if that doesn't work and it doesn't, the person doesn't back off, you just turn to the crowd and say, you see this guy is a cold warrior. He doesn't want peace. He doesn't want friendship. He just wants to fight. Um, it's not very convincing, but I think, it, again, the point of this is to make people shut up and just follow the rules which is again how uh, Brezhnev's Soviet Union works. But guides understood that most tourists were normal people just looking to take in the sights, get a taste of Soviet life, and have a pleasant vacation. But they really dislike the people who are trying to make ideological arguments uh, because they make life difficult for everybody, including the guide. But guides weren't some kind of Soviet robot either. Many were interested in meeting foreigners, and in some cases, they would bend the rules, compromise with tourists, and even help them out. I'm just reminded of a memoir of an American Jewish person who traveled to the Soviet Union, and they really wanted to visit their town. And the town happens to be an area that's close to foreigners. His interest guide spent weeks lobbying the Soviet government uh, to allow him an exception to go and visit his, his family's graves, because she took interest in him and they became friends. Alex gave me another example involving American Jews. By the late 1960s, American Jews began visiting the USSR to help their Soviet counterparts emigrate. The campaign to save Soviet Jews was an international movement and a Cold War scandal. But American Jews came to the USSR through in-tourists, 
And you'd think the tour agency would stop them. So, but two things happen. The first is that it doesn't happen. Alex says that he's never seen an internal Intours document referring to this. It's as if Intours knew there was little they could do, or that it was just too much trouble to do it. So it pretends it doesn't exist. And I think that's exactly what happens. In the end, they're foreigners. They, they are paying hard currency. You can't just hit them over the head because the implications diplomatically and economically would be pretty much devastating. So you just let them do whatever they want. And if they go over the line, the KGB can hit them over the head. And it seems that despite all the rules, despite the ideological fencing, and despite Cold War tensions, guides and tourists mostly got along and even formed relationships. I thought going into this project that a lot of the tourists wouldn't like their guides or would constantly be fighting with them or something like that or getting into arguments with them. But it appears to me that most tourists like their guide. And there's a lot of compliments being sent back by the tourists about how great their guide was and wanting contact information or to send them stuff. Being an in-tourist guide offered a lot of advantages, and friendly relations between tourists and guides often turned on the touchy subject of gifts. Guides have access to foreigners, foreigners have access to goods. Guides are very much interested in getting gifts from the charges because you can resell those goods for very nice money. So um, the guides are ambiguous characters. They're supposed to be the policemen, but they often are uh, collaborators of the lawbreakers. And then there was the even touchier subject of guides and tourists hooking up and even getting married. The tourist guide romance found appeal in the French bard Gilbert Bicon's 1964 hit, Natalie. At first, Natalie is what you'd expect. A businesslike, pretty young guide who earnestly explains the October Revolution. But later, when she and Picard are alone, all the seriousness, soberness, and even the October Revolution are gone. La place rouge était vide. Devant moi marchait Nathalie. Il avait un joli nom, mon guide, Nathalie. This stuff runs the whole gamut of human emotions. Uh, once every couple of years, there is a big scandal in the East about guides who have sex uh, with the foreigners and even marry them, which is considered an enormous black-faced organization because, you know, uh, this is the warrior that's supposed to fight the illegal war and instead it sleeps with an enemy or even leaves the country. So what did Teddy think of his guides? I think my guide experience was actually overall very good. They were, for the most part, young kids at, at, a, at a language institute, and they ranged in age, I swear, at least a couple of them were like 18 and 19. Mm. On, only on rare occasions did I get anybody over late 20s. I found the ones that went to an institute, Irkutsk near Lake Baikal, were better than most of them elsewhere. Mm -hmm. The very best of all was in the Baltics. Her first name was Zane. She absolutely could have walked the streets of the United States as a Britisher. That's how good her English was. So, However, Teddy says, not all guides were created equal. But they, they didn't really teach people how to be nice. They didn't teach them about service. They truly didn't. Teddy felt that some of his guides were thrown into the job before they were ready. When I went to Frunze, the capital of Kyrgyzia at the time, my guide said they had had two tourists in two years, and none of them were Americans. And yet he was listed as an English speaker, and I felt for him. 
Touring the Soviet Union was no glamorous vacation. Poor accommodations, bad food, surly service, and testy or poorly trained guides. So why did Americans want to visit? Soviet Union was marketed interestingly by tourist guidebooks. It was not a day at the beach. It was an arduous and difficult experience because Soviet Union didn't really have beaches, wasn't known for shopping. So why did you go? Because really a lot of was the politics. You wanted to experience a country that was supposedly the opposite of the United States. You want to see if the Russians are like us or not. Uh, people really want to see Russian culture. And there is uh, there are a lot of ethnic tourists, people who, um, who are from, uh, whose families are from Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, and so forth, and they come to visit their motherland. Then there was the danger. Missteps could land you in jail, like Nuka Mott whom Soviet border guards arrested after he crossed the Norwegian border in 1965. The Soviets sentenced Mott to 18 months in prison. An international scandal ensued and only became worse when Mott mysteriously died during his transport to a labor camp. But Mott was an extreme exception. For many tourists, the risk of going to the Soviet Union was part of the experience. A lot of the travelogues describe the border experience, supposedly being kind of arduous and kind of menacing seeing the border guards. So the idea of like an omnipresent big brother or surveillance, that might have scared away some, but it also attracted some who wanted to live out their own kind of personal James Bond movie or spy novel or something like that. Interestingly, some U.S. government officials were concerned about Americans traveling to Russia. There was some hesitance about it in the 1950s when it first started. They thought that Americans would be easily duped and would come back with overly rosy idea of the Soviet Union as, as a utopia or some kind of paradise that they would be fooled. That almost never happened at all with the, almost anybody. Yet the fear of tourists turned dupes still stuck. So much so, in 1960, the U.S. Senate commissioned a pamphlet called Beware, Tourists Reporting on Russia. The committee feared that Soviet-American cultural exchanges had loosened the flood of Soviet propaganda into the U.S. But by the mid-1960s, American officials changed their tune. They encouraged tourism and saw American tourists as great ambassadors for the United States and the American way of life, just the way they dressed, the way they acted. Um, they, they viewed them as kind of cosmopolitan, that they could win over the Soviet people with their interest in just in the Soviet Union. So I asked Teddy if he considered himself as an ambassador of sorts. Having the opportunity to run into people whether they're in in the Andes and never met an American before or in the Soviet Union, it was a chance to strike a blow of friendship for the United States and, and at least conduct myself in such a way that that there was no ugly American part to it. Act three, I met the devil and he's not so bad after all. The Cold War played an ironic role in igniting American curiosity. This place, the Soviet Union, was presented as some scary, evil prison by American propagandists, and Americans wanted to see things for themselves. I get it. I too became fascinated with the Soviet Union as a kid because Ronald Reagan declared it the evil empire. Living through the Cold War also created images in the tourist's mind about what the Soviet Union was and wasn't. Assumptions that many had included that it was a police state, that they would be watched, that they wouldn't be able to meet with regular people on the street, that the stores would be empty, things like that. Some mostly negative assumptions about what the Soviet Union 
um, was and would be like. These over-the-top negative images actually helped the Soviet Union's image. Because a lot of American tourists came back thinking it wasn't so bad as I thought it was. And a lot of the propaganda is wrong. You can talk to a regular Soviet man or woman. You can go to stores and buy things. This spoke to a paradox in how visitors saw the USSR. Many couldn't reconcile the fact that the Soviet system had changed since Stalin. It was not the closed society they were told. Nor was it the totalitarian state some claimed. There is a really weird cycle in which there is, the evidence is telling in your face that the Soviet Union had really changed in weird ways, but nobody can quite get off the idea that it's actually a Stalinist system. It is also true in some ways. The system is Stalinist and it had really changed. They can't really reconcile the two sides of the Soviet system, the Stalinism and the fact that it's engaging globalization. And nobody can quite make sense of it because of ideological structures. That many American tourists saw the USSR as both drab and exciting spoke to this contradiction. Drab signified the kind of the idea that the Soviet Union was gray, that it was dull, that the people were robotic, that they were all spotting propaganda. But it was also exciting in the sense that it was Cold War, that people were crossing the Iron Curtain, and they were getting to experience a culture they thought would be totally different and opposite from what they knew back home. These paradoxes were at the heart of how Cold War America saw its enemy. It was portrayed as this strange and dangerous country, yet this was precisely why so many people were curious about it. So I asked Teddy about being of the Cold War generation. What was the Cold War experience like in a place like Montana? Was the USSR a source of fear? It's not that we felt it um, like you would in a metropolitan area. I mean, if people in metropolitan areas really got hit daily with uh, the dangers of nuclear warfare, we who lived in the West didn't have quite the same immediacy. If somebody wanted to drop a, an A-bomb here in Montana, they would be lucky to take out more than 40,000 people. It was not a case of living in constant fear, but if you paid attention to current events, it became much more real to you. Don Raleigh first visited the Soviet Union in 1971. Don is a professor emeritus of Soviet history at the University of North Carolina. He's writing a biography of Leonid Brezhnev and a member of the Cold War generation. The Soviet menace, as we saw it, fashioned my entire generation. We had very regular duck and cover drills. A siren would blast and we'd, we'd duck and take cover under our desk because you know, the fear of a, uh, of a nuclear war. And then we started doing all sorts of physical fitness tests, and they were always framed in regard to the Russians. And I was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, I clocked in unlimited hours on my knees uh, praying for the conversion of the atheist communists. <laughs> I asked Teddy what observations jumped out in his memory. One was the number of people on the street in uniform. The sheer number of people in uniform everywhere I went. I was in obscure small towns, and I was here, and I was there, and there were there were uniforms. You pick any important town in America, and you could go there, and you could walk all day long and never see a person in uniform. And sure, it's pretty rare in the States, unless you live near a military base. Still, the ubiquity of uniforms fell in line with the belief that the Soviet Union was a militarized society. This impression was reinforced by the early May holidays. First, there was International Workers' Day on May 1st. Recall, the ominous nuclear missiles and other emblems of Soviet power 
parading through Red Square. That was followed by May 9th, or Victory Day, which became a holiday in 1965. Victory commemorated the Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany. Teddy got a full pageantry of Soviet military might. And they were constantly reminding the citizens of the sacrifices made and how they had to rededicate themselves, and the enemy was still at the door. World War II was the biggest, but they had new threats to resolve. Then, of course, there was the drinking. The, the drinking was rampant even at that time. Teddy reminded me that his dad was an alcoholic, and he didn't drink because of it. So it's not surprising that he'd be sensitive to this arguably pervasive affliction in Soviet society. He said that in restaurants, he saw so many instances of... People sitting at card table-sized tables with not pouring liquor out of a fifth into a, a small glass, but just drinking from the bottle. You might have 10 or 15 empty full bottles for, for two and three people, and uh, they were still going when I was leaving. So what, what you had was a, a depressing sight. Don Raleigh first went to the USSR in 1971 as part of a student exchange program. It was the beginning of detente, a decade when the U.S. and Soviet Union made a concerted effort to improve relations, sign arms control agreements, and increase economic and cultural exchange. I asked him about some of his first impressions. I spent four months there. We arrived at the start of February. You know, this was a, a part of a bilateral agreement, so both sides wanted to make it work. But Raleigh says that it was hard to ignore the stark differences with his life in the United States. Yeah, you know, the living standard was was pretty grim, but I had a wonderful time. I loved, I met people, and sure, there were people who reported on us. Uh, it was an exhilarating experience in many regards. Again, it was very grim. I recall a Russian proverb, I have met the devil. He's not so bad after all. <laughs> and it's not like Raleigh had an easy go. He developed a case of Jardia soon after his arrival. Jardia is an intestinal infection from contaminated water or food. He was in a Soviet hospital for 11 days. Where they initially told me that there was no such thing as Jardiasis in the Soviet Union, that that was Western propaganda, particularly American propaganda. And as a result, they didn't treat him, all the while keeping him. I tried to actually flee the hospital, and they apprehended me and scolded me. They finally started treating him, and the doctors told him, the test results showed that you indeed have it, so your, your government must have sent you here on purpose, sick, so that you could get free medical care. That's what they told me. Raleigh's run-in with Soviet medicine didn't sour him, though. Surly doctors and nurses aside, he was surprised by the... A very positive attitude, their curiosity toward Americans uh, and foreigners. I mean, precisely because in all Soviet comparisons, we were enemy number one. They were so mesmerized by Western culture, American culture. You know, they read Hemingway and Salinger. They danced the twists. They watched Marilyn Monroe flicks. When John F. Kennedy was murdered, as one of my baby boomers from Saratov said, when they shot Kennedy, it was a tragedy for all of us. Teddy recalled the reaction when Robert Kennedy was assassinated in June 68. I was in Tajikistan when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. They interrupted a Soviet soccer game. The people with whom I was sitting in uh, Dushanbe uh, knew that I was an American and they properly 
deferred to me. Nobody said anything, but they knew that I was uh, distraught, and I was. Raleigh says that the admiration for the Kennedys was still potent in the 1970s, and Kennedy half-dollars were one of the best gifts he could bring. Before departing the U.S., he would load up on them at the bank and hand them out to friends. Everyone was just enamored with Kennedy half-dollars. I think the bottom line was the whole Camelot appeal, right? He and Jackie being so, you know, that they were an attractive young couple. And in fact, some uh, friends of mine who, who read the Baby Boomers book who were not Soviet specialists, that stunned them about Kennedy too. They just took him totally by surprise, in part because they thought, oh, Cuban Missile Crisis, they must be fearful. Uh, but they weren't. Despite the U.S. and the Soviet Union locked in a global rivalry, Teddy found Soviet people were quite friendly, at times helpful, and even looked out for him. Like Don Raleigh, Teddy met the devil, and he wasn't so bad after all. In late June, Teddy found himself on the Trans-Siberian Railway. It was a bumpy ride in his sleeper car, the fourth of more than a dozen cream-colored and maroon cabins pulled by a bright green diesel engine. The train departed Irkutsk, bound for the Pacific port city of Nahodka, the final leg of Teddy's trip. Now, if you remember, in-tourists provided almost everything a tourist would need. And one of those things were special coupons Teddy could use during his travels. Think of them like those old American Express traveler's checks. They gave me a good bunch of those in Moscow. I got more of them when, when I was in Yalta and, and more still when I went to uh, Siberia. Teddy was supposed to use these coupons in in-tourist hotels, restaurants, and train dining cars and the like. At least in theory, as they found out on the train to the Far East. When he had his guide ask the dining car manager if the coupons were valid, it turned out that he had never seen them, didn't know what they were, and said, it's beyond my power to do anything. Annoyed, Teddy decided to boycott the dining car and get by on the snacks you could buy with rubles. And the words start getting around among the passengers, including my bunkmates, that they were starving the American on, in the car. I was the only American on the whole train for the entire time. And, I, and I'd have people on my bunk and sitting around chatting until wee hours of the morning. That's when one of his bunkmates, Pavel, stepped in. Probably thought I was broke, and he told other people. And when he got off, the new guy came on, and he had just come from his parents' private plot of vegetables, etc. And uh, he knew he knew about me before he got to my seat, and he dumped on me a bag of goodies, eighteen hard-boiled eggs, bunch of cucumbers, this, that, and the other thing. Nobody was going to starve on his watch. And the new guy and a few others then marshaled to the dining car manager. And he rallied the troops. He got a woman, another guy, and they went down and talked to the person in the dining car. They did the bargaining for me. And the guy said, oh, excuse me, can I show you the menu? Because I said, you want to starve me? You did it. <laughs> <laughs> the incident, no matter how annoying, left Teddy with a good memory and a positive impression of Soviet people. Those that I met on the Trans-Siberian were a, a real bonus. And the people themselves were absolutely delightful for the most part.
Next time on Teddy Goes to the USSR, Teddy Meets the KGB. So Americans are probably the most dangerous of foreign tourists. There is a very large network of surveillance. I paste that thread or a couple of them in strategic spots. And when it was disturbed, invariably, every time I came back, I knew that I was being watched. Every tourist hotel has an office in which the KGB sits, which has wiretapping offices, which are connected to certain rooms. So they would never talk about really important things in their houses assuming that they are listened on. I wrote it in code and I broke it with knowing what the code was. Teddy Rowe is suspected of involvement in American intelligence. I am totally baffled by that statement. That enemies are everywhere and therefore the state must be constantly vigilant. Now. Being paranoid doesn't mean you don't have enemies. In the late 1950s, there was uh, something called Operation Lincoln, where the CIA briefed tourists before they went to the Soviet Union and then debriefed them afterwards. We unofficially photographed Rose detailed diary entries. I think it's as simple as that. You have to create this information because this, your job is to create the information. And so I printed a, a note to them in capital letters saying, if you want to know any of this stuff, come and talk to me, I'll tell you. They're often made fun of. They're like, they're like the lowest, the dumbest people, whereas the real work is done by people who are either posted abroad or whose job is to conduct active operations against foreigners. Yes, I was critical of what I saw. The main thing is that people kind of understand that there is a system which is like official and, and harsh and hostile. And there is a reality which is, which is basically that so many people crave contact. That might have scared away some, but it also attracted some who wanted to live out their own kind of personal James Bond movie or spy novel or something like that. Teddy Goes to the USSR was written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Thanks to Edward Andrushenko, Alex Hazanov, Andrew Jacobs, and Don Raleigh for their participation. And special thanks to Teddy Rowe for sharing his story, diary, and photographs. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Elliot Holmes. Funding for Teddy Goes to the USSR was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and the monthly patrons of the SRB podcast. If you want to learn more about Teddy's trip and the Soviet Union, go to the series website at teddytoussr.com. That's teddytoussr.com. And if you're enjoying Teddy Goes to the USSR, please consider becoming a patron of the SRB podcast so we can do more narrative audio like this. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. And you can also follow Teddy Goes to the USSR on your favorite podcast app.